I was invited to participate in Podcast Row, an initiative partnering up-and-coming entrepreneurs and brands with top business and peak performance podcasters, that's me, for networking, podcast interviews, and content creation. And Leadership in the Environment guest, recent guest Jeremy Ryan Slate was also part of it. And also James Altucher not only participated, but he was one of the main planners. Running into him there is how he came to be a guest on this podcast a couple weeks ago. And we recorded at Stand Up New York, I guess a stand-up club where James Altucher, he's a co-owner, and actually he treated us to some of his stand-up. I'm sorry I didn't record that. Anyway, the next seven episodes bring the seven up-and-coming entrepreneurs, friends of James Altucher, and various people who were participating. Now, because we recorded back-to-back, the recordings had to be under 30 minutes, so I couldn't talk about the environment with each, but each is a leader. I hope that you can learn from each of them, and if they're in your field, work with them. My first guest is Ani Manian. Ani came up to me before the event began, when people were nibbling on the food before the event really got started, and he said he was pleasantly surprised to see my name attached to the event, because he had read my Inc. article on not flying. I'll link to it on the page. He was in his second year without flying. He told me he used to fly a lot. As you'll hear in the conversation, he's visited, I think, 60 countries, but he agreed on what the article said, and he went for it. What he actually said to me was, Josh, I hate you, and I love you, because he did it, and he found that he really enjoyed the experience. Most of all, he did it. Almost no one does. We all get that we learn from experience, but few people allow themselves to try new experiences that really push them out of what they're used to, especially around environmental things. But really any personal change, we're much more likely to rationalize not changing. Most of us spend our time looking at risks we could take, thinking of things we could do, and then inside we have this feeling of, oh, don't want to do that, I want to stay safe, and then our minds rationalize. We call it something else, but our minds justify and give us reasons why not doing something. You know, in the area of not flying, people say like, oh, the plane was going to fly anyway. Or they say, oh, what difference does it make? I'm not really that heavy, which is this total specious non-logic. If you look at it, that's not how supply and demand works for planes not flying. And you pay for your part of the flight, the plane, not just your part. Anyway, I'm getting a field from Ani. If you want to improve your life, you have to change it. That means it helps to work with someone who changed his who reflected on his values, and you'll hear him talk about this in our episode. Experience led him to discover that he liked the change, but most people don't even do that. If you want to change in your life, Ani Manian is the type of person to get in touch with. So without further ado, let's listen to Ani. He describes how he became someone who changes his life and enables others to change theirs. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Josh. I'm here with Ani. How are you doing? Fantastic. Pleasure to be here, Josh. Glad to be with you. And when we spoke a bit earlier, you right off the bat jumped into that something from this world affected you a while ago and you, you had a mixed view on it. Can you, can you say what you said to me? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when I saw your article a while back um, about the fact that you didn't fly for a year. So the incredible. Really, yeah, uh-huh. really contextualizing the real cost mm-hmm. of air travel, because I think you know, most people, when they think about travel and specifically when they think about cost, they think of the money that they pay airlines. Mm-hmm. They think of the money they pay hotels. They think of the money that they spend on holiday. What they don't think about is the cost of the environment, right? The damage we do um, as individuals and as a society, um, mostly because, you know, no one talks about those costs. So I think what you did really powerfully was articulate the real cost of travel. And it really made me think, um, 
And I thought to myself, well, could I do this? Let me try it. Because I've been to over 60 countries, mm-hmm. um, lived on four continents. It's honestly been second nature for me to travel and feed that wanderlust. Mm-hmm. Um, and that article caught me at a point in time when I realized that all the things that I was searching for on the outside in different places, in different cultures, in different you know countries and cities, um, all those things actually lay inside Mm-hmm. And when I started that exploration, I realized that my urge to travel, that itch actually subsided quite a bit. And so I tried it and I, and I succeeded. I didn't travel. I didn't take a flight for a whole year. Oh, shake, I got to shake your hand. <laughs> and um, so you said the cost was the environmental cost. I think an even greater cost is the cost that you recovered that you just talked about. The, our internal... I mean, I would say it's a joy You're missing out on, for me, when I say not, I have to, I, I have to revamp my language because I keep saying not flying, but in my heart, I'm saying community. I'm saying uh, if I'm not eating some exotic fruit for, that I can only get in Thailand or something, I'm eating a turnip, but it's from a farm nearby and I'm getting delicious from there. Right. And I think this illustrates that dichotomy between minimalism and maximalism, which you um, illustrated so well in the garbage experiment, Mm -hmm. right? Because, and even the, you know, so-called reports of your home being very minimalist and Spartan, Mm -hmm. um, and you sort of turning that around and saying, well, the things I have bring me an infinite amount of joy. So it doesn't feel like a loss because I think a lot of people, they focus on the loss rather than thinking about the gain. Yeah, it's, in fact, it's the opposite of a lot. I don't, yeah. It's, it's, I'm not getting rid of stuff because I want to get rid of stuff or because other people are getting rid of stuff. I'm getting rid of stuff because it's a weight. Right. It's, it's an anchor right. that I don't want. And, you know, this happens in so many areas of our life, right? Think about social circles where we hang on to people under the pretense of socializing when, in fact, we're not actually connecting, right? This city is based on drinking and eating, right? That's, those are two of the main things you do outside with people you know or people mm-hmm. you want to get to know. And all of those things actually involve consumption, right? And the level of connection it sort of engenders is typically very superficial. And we surround ourselves with, you know, people who we think we're friends with, but it's actually a very surface level um, relationship. And we think that if we walk away from these surface level relationships, we lose something. But what we forget is that there's so much to gain, right? Perhaps just from silence, And this works in terms of, you know, food. For example, um, I've never actually eaten meat ever, never tasted it. And in New York, that's very easy because, you know, there's vegetarian options in galore. But when I'm out, say, with, uh, you know, friends who eat meat or people I've never met before and, you know, they hear that I'm vegetarian and never eaten meat, a lot of the times the first response I get is, Oh, you're missing out on blank. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And I always think, interesting you say that because I actually don't think I'm missing out. I actually think that I'm abundant 
with all these complex flavors and all these complex permutations and combinations of experiencing the food that I do eat, right? And it unlocks a whole level of creativity, right? Because when we sort of take these things for granted, then we lose out on the creativity, right? And this is something that I think a lot of your work has really touched on, is to not focus so much on the loss, but actually think about the gain. Um, there's a really old joke, right? The pessimist looks at the, the glass that's half full of water and says the glass is half empty. The optimist looks at the glass and he's like, uh, you know, the glass is half full. An engineer looks at the glass and he says, well, the glass is twice as big. <laughs> Uh, you know the the way that you're approaching these things tells me that this is not this is what you do i mean you you, when you said you were prime it came to you reading that article came to you at a specific time that you were i i heard that you were receptive to it and that tells me that this is not while it may have given you a big step forward or a big advance or something to think about what, tell me what, what was that – because you help people in this area. That means you've helped yourself in this area. I pres- correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And what is this area? How, what do you help people with? How, what have you – how have you – what primed you that you were receptive to it? So, you know, a few years ago, I realized how and to what extent our subconscious mind controls everything we do, nearly everything. It's about 95%. Mm-hmm. And what I realized was that even though – with my conscious mind, with the 5%, I thought I had agency over what I was doing. I thought I was in control in the driver's seat of my life and of my choices and decisions. I actually wasn't. Mm-hmm. And there was so much, just like the Titanic, when it approached that the tip of that iceberg, it didn't know what lay underneath. I didn't know what lay underneath my subconscious. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my decisions, a lot of my um, actions were essentially conditioned responses that had been perfected with repetition over the course of my life. And the deeper I dug into what was going on in my subconscious, the ways in which it was blocking me, the ways it was driving me into certain patterns of behavior, certain habits, certain ways of being, I realized that all the results in my life on the external side were a result of this internal state. And I realized that this is true for every single person. Before you go on, can you describe an example of one of these things that you noticed? I mean, it sounds like flying, going for a year without flying, you'd already done it before. What, what are some other examples, if you, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, I think, you know, everything from the food I was eating, the way I was medicating myself with food, mm-hmm. right, to cope with um, depression, to cope with procrastination, to use as an avoidance mechanism. So you would... You would sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to get into some more depth here and, and make it available to others. So you would feel depression coming on. Something would happen. You start feeling depression coming on, and be like, "I don't want to feel that." I mean, probably subconsciously, you'd feel, "I don't want to feel that." Exactly. And then you just go and grab some food, and then oh, oh, this tastes really good, and now the depression's solved. Because historically, when I was a kid, that's how my mom treated problems. Right. Oh, Everything was solved here. Have food. a cookie. Yeah. Exactly. And so. That response got conditioned into my subconscious. So as an adult, when I encountered a difficult emotion, my first reaction was to self-soothe, get that dopamine hit with food. Mm. You know, in New York, 
people do it with food, they do it with alcohol, they do it with, with sex, with drugs. There's so many coping mechanisms. And this is a really basic, easy example that almost everyone can identify with. And yet the, most of us are sleeping, sleepwalking through life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And food is actually the number one coping mechanism in the world. And a lot of my clients, and I work with entrepreneurs who really want to leverage the power of their subconscious mind to really accelerate personal and business growth, a lot of them are experiencing health issues, right? Because they've been hustling and grinding and pushing and forcing mm-hmm. to grow their business, to take their life to the next level. But there's a price to pay, right? Because when you're not in alignment, there's usually resistance that crops up in the form of fear, self-doubt, anxiety, overwhelm. And when this resistance pops up, our default reaction is to self-medicate, is to self-soothe. That's why people procrastinate. That's why people use food. That's why people um, use, you know, drugs or other ways of taking their mind off of things to get that dopamine hit to actually just feel safe in their body. Because back in the day, when we were contending with predators that were threatening our survival... Or predators. Yeah, and we, you know, we had to stay in our comfort zone quite literally to stay alive. Because if we venture too far, then there's a good chance we might get killed, eaten, right? These days, the only threat we face is to our self-esteem, is to our identity. And with entrepreneurship and even with regular achievement, right, people in professional careers, um, you know, musicians, actors, people doing creative things, um, we put so much of ourselves in our work. Mm-hmm. Right. Everything becomes a deeply personal experience, especially with social media, especially with ourselves being displayed so nakedly to the world. And so the propensity to try and stay safe, to try and protect ourselves increases paradoxically compared to the times when the only sort of real danger was a natural disaster, a predator or some sort of like event that would threaten our existence. So you you give the example of food. Okay, your mom medicated, soothed you with food. You grew up doing that. It became a default behavior. You didn't really think about it. Uh, how did you realize it? What what tipped you off? And was that the first one, or was that just one of many? I, oh, one, one of one many. Of many. One of many. You know, was it the first one, or what? What got? How did this start bubbling up? Because if it's subconscious and 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 we're blind to it. How do we make ourselves aware of it? How did you make yourself aware of it? So did, did you, sorry to keep, did you make yourself aware of it or did the first couple of times, did it happen to you and then you picked up the pattern and then went from there? I imagine it was that, but I don't want to. Yeah. So, suppose. you know, with food, it, it becomes a pattern that's easy to observe, right? But a lot, unlike food, which is while well, we eat, you know, multiple times a day. So, you know, there's more opportunities to see that. But a lot of this unconscious behavior this self-destructive self-sabotaging behavior happens at an invisible level so if it was how did you pick up on it so do you remember the food one i think came from a book when i realized how people um essentially self-medicate any feeling that they want to essentially suppress, repress, mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, dissolve, not deal, with. not deal with, exactly. Just put off and delay. And, yeah. But to answer your question in terms of how we unearth these things that are below the surface, that are invisible, that are subconscious, really our 
the reality of our life and our work, our bank account, the quality of our relationships, the state of our bodies, all these things on the outside is a direct reflection of our subconscious identity. Mm-hmm. So if you want to understand your subconscious identity on money, just look at your bank account. Look at your spending habits. Look at what you spend your money on. Look at how much money you spend and how much money you save. If you want to look at your subconscious identity around your physical body, your health, look at your health, right? Are you, do you feel like you're at a healthy weight? Do you feel like you take care of yourself? Do you feel like you treat your body like a dumpster or do you treat it like a temple? The thing is, Everything in our life is a tangible manifestation of our subconscious identity. So what I help people do um, is avoid the trap of behavior-based change because behavior-based change requires willpower. And willpower is a non-renewable resource like fossil fuels, mm-hmm. right? It goes away. Now, every day, well, it renews the next day. It renews the next day. But during the day, we, it, we have a fixed it, amount. Exhausted. Exactly. So people who try to work out after they come home from work usually don't end up doing that because they're tired, decision fatigue, no willpower left. The way to make long-term sustainable change and to get the results that you want is to make the change at an identity level. Right? For example, did you buy a pack of cigarettes today? <laughs> I have not bought a... Uh, that's funny the only time I bought a pack of cigarettes was when I was a real little kid and my older stepbrother was like he was you know doing his misbehaving stuff and right. so I did it with him but I don't think I ever bought one like for real why is that? why have I not bought a pack of cigarettes? yeah I have better things to do with everything about me you're not a smoker <laughs> right? yeah you don't identify as a smoker mm-hmm. so do you face any resistance when it comes to not buying a pack of cigarettes? Mm-hmm. So because in your identity, you don't smoke at the behavior level, you have no issues doing what, you know, what you want. But if you were a smoker and you bought a pack of cigarettes every day and you tried to stop smoking, it would be really hard because in your identity, you're wired to be a smoker. You say, I am a smoker, therefore I buy cigarettes. And that one day that you decide to stop smoking, it would be extremely hard. And this is really why change has to come from the identity level rather than at the behavior level. And that identity is really held in the seat of our subconscious. And that controls essentially all the things we believe about ourselves. And our beliefs about ourselves determine the thoughts that we think. The thoughts that we think determine the feelings we feel. And the thoughts and feelings result in the actions we take and especially the actions we take consistently which is essentially our unconscious habits so in life we don't get what we want which is left brain conscious mind we get our unconscious habits we get what we do consistently and so the real way to essentially make a change um, whether it's in you know picking up litter when you see it whether it's an eating healthy whether it's you know using less packaging whether it's flying less because you care about the environment is to install this new way of being into your subconscious mind so when you read the article you at that time flying was a natural thing for you to do right didn't think twice about it right and did you have any other flights sometimes someone will say 
I, I have some flights, so I'll just finish those out. Yeah. Or did you just start right there? Start right there. I mean, what, I, what did you actually do? So like, I was flying pretty much once a month, right? Uh-huh. Before. Because I, I thought of myself as a traveler. Mm-hmm. I'm the kind of person who travels a lot, who likes to travel, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to switch my identity from that to I'm the kind of person who cares about the environment. I'm the kind of person who knows the real impact of air travel, of a single flight, I'm the kind of person who takes this environmental damage, this impact seriously. And so by changing my identity, it didn't create a resistance when it came to the actual behavior. So what, so, um, okay, so you work with people so that, I think a lot of people would think, I couldn't make a shift that quick. But you made a shift that quick, and it wasn't like it wasn't like you were planning to, because you didn't know the article was going to come your way. Well, I also spent years working on this and developing these methods, so it was it, well, it was a it, little easier for me. That's but, what I'm trying to get. I was yeah. you can't. Someone who's listening to you and thinking, yeah. I couldn't do that. They can. I mean, that's what you help people with. I right. presume right. is to make it so that they can make as big shifts right. from 60 countries. In I think I read in your first 30 years. Yeah. Uh, to Cold turkey. I don't know if you went for longer than a year. If you if you kept going after the year, year and three months actually. So you're still going. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, I mean, I I like the sound of that. And um, uh, and so Pete, I think a lot of people think that's not possible. Or there's something special about him, and that's what you help people with. Yeah. And for me, it's also like, yeah, it's possible. It. it and I want to add something to it that you probably I I presume that something that comes out in your coaching. I'm not sure, but that. Once you make that shift and you make the new identity, there's, you know, there's um, the, effect, the confirmation bias. When you identify yourself as one way, you only see this, you'll tend to see the stuff that like, oh, I love travel. And you're going to see all the pictures of your friends traveling. You're going to want to travel more. And then you shift and then you start seeing all the things about the pollution on one side or community and the value of staying home. And you don't have to work so much to make all the money to do all these other things. And suddenly that shift that seemed hard it's easier and easier and then becomes joyful. So there's actually a part of the brain called the RAS, or the reticular activating system. Mm-hmm. This is the part that we used back in our primal days to recognize blueberries, for example, right? Things in our environment that we needed. So we would prime our brain with that to be able to spot it quicker. Mm-hmm. These days, if you buy a red sports car and you're driving on the street, you'll start to see red sports cars. So the same way, once you make an identity shift, confirmation bias kicks in and you start seeing all the ways, all the things that actually support that. Because our brain is a meaning-making machine and our brain wants to prove us right. This is why we make change at the belief level because when we change what we believe, our brain works really hard to make that coherent to make that make sense, to justify that, right? So we start looking for evidence that support our new beliefs. And once we go deep enough, once this new belief is installed in our subconscious mind, then we essentially see it as something that brings us joy because that's who we are. And our brain doesn't want us to be wrong, essentially. And the fundamental function of a human being is to seek joy and to seek growth, 
We are growth and joy seeking machines. And we associate growth and joy with everything we do, including smoking cigarettes, if that's what we do, because at some level, we've convinced our primal brain is convinced that that cigarette habit is actually helping us, right? Even though from our left brain, conscious brain, we know that it's hurting us. That's why all those warnings on cigarette packets don't work. Yeah. So we, I'm partly I'm translating what you're talking about that to our behavior with respect to the environment. Also, we're out of time and we barely scratched the surface. Uh, but you have made changes. Uh, I mean, through training, you've led yourself to a place where you can make major life changes that many people, when I talk about not flying, they're like, that's impossible. And, but you just did it. And then you find joy in it. And you can lead others to do the same thing, presumably to make the change from the, all that training that you gave to yourself you can probably make that happen a lot faster with them. Yeah. So I've compressed, you know, all my a decade long of research and trial and error into a three month program that I call quantum leap. Mm -hmm. And this essentially identifies the things blocking you, identifies the identity of the person who has the results that you want, and then installs this new identity in your subconscious and essentially rewires you to re generate those results on autopilot without any resistance. So, that's the end of our conversation, but the beginning for the listener to contact you and follow up on these. Yeah. And so if you're interested in this, I've recorded a mini training for you guys. Just go to quantumleapcourse.com. It's a mini training. It'll give you an overview into how your brain works uh, and how you can leverage it to create the results that you want. You can find me at animanian.com, A-N-I-M-A-N-I-A-N. -A -A uh, same thing on Instagram, animanian. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Ani, thank you very much. Cheers.